This is the Sunday after Ascension, or the seventh Sunday of Easter. I think it used to be called the Sunday after Ascension. In the, in the old liturgy, before the new prayer book, the Paschal candle was put out on Ascension Day after the reading of the Ascension Gospel where Jesus... And this gets put out. And I say almost every year my great uh, failure, I thought at the time, as a Sunday school teacher at St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo. I was just about to go off to seminary and I had the responsibility for leading the children's chapel service in Julia Baylard Hall. And so after Ascension, on the Sunday after Ascension, I said to the kids in the chapel, what is not in this chapel that has been in this chapel for the last 40 days? Ooh, the Paschal candle. That's right. And I said, and why is the Paschal candle not here now? And so a kid raised his hand and I called on him and he said, because we don't have to think about Jesus anymore. (laughs) So somehow it was unclear on the concept, I guess, right? I want to say a couple of things to you, actually read a couple of quotations from Father Thomas Keating, uh, from his wonderful book, The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience, and to say some things about how he, what he writes about the ascension and its meaning, and then to see in the three readings we have uh, a couple of things going on. One is the now pervasive presence of Christ, in the biblical witness, which is obviously post-Ascension and post-Pentecost, which we're going to celebrate next Sunday, the coming formally of the Holy Spirit of God, so that we become both the beneficiaries and the fiduciaries of God's Spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So we will see that at work. And maybe some knowledge about the fact that the spirit is pervasive in every age, in every culture, understanding something about how the early Christians began to see in their missionary work, how they might understand this and speak of this in a way that would resonate with the cultural milieu in which they found themselves. Father Thomas Keating says that on ascension, you know, we have this idea, ascension means you go up. In the House of Deputies list over the last two or three weeks, somebody asked a question of all the people on the list serve, how did they have any prayers for the blessing of an elevator? And so uh, someone just recently wrote a a contribution to the thread that said, well, I don't have anything particularly to offer, but I would expect that the best time to bless an elevator would be on the Feast of the Ascension. (laughs) I have to tell you, I've been on this House of Deputies list. I'm I'm a deputy to General Convention for the last two years. 
And there are some, it's like sports talk radio. Some people need to get a life. And particularly the clergy, I don't know what in the world they're doing except writing commentary on the House of Deputies listserv. Really, boy, it's just something. But anyway, if you have ever any need for the blessing of an elevator, let's wait till next ascension to do it, and then we'll be able to come up with something. Father Thomas Keating said, the ascension is not some geographical location, but it is into the heart of all creation. In particular, Jesus has penetrated the very depth of our being. Our separate self-sense has melted into his divine person. We heard something about that in John's Gospel a couple of minutes ago. And now we can act under the direct influence of his spirit. So Jesus is not located now in time and space. He's everywhere and in our hearts. And the spirit that we will celebrate that comes to the church and into the hearts of all faithful people on Pentecost will be part now of this pervasive, risen, ascended presence. The power and the ability to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis. Now in terms of the effects of the ascension and what Father Keating speaks of, he said the ascension is the process of our own divinization. That's a term we don't use a lot in the West. In the Eastern Church they use it all the time. It's called theosis. Uh, we become less unlike God, right? So St. Athanasius of Alexandria said, he, he said, uh, we are not God, but our true self is God. And Father Keating quotes him uh, all the time in his writing. The ascension represents the mysterious interpenetration of material experience, spiritual reality, and divine presence. This opens to us the transcendent potential in ourselves to our mind, which opens up us up to unlimited truth, and to our will, which reaches out for unlimited love. You know, in the old catechism, the soul is the reason and the will. And so what Father Keating is talking about in this particular case is how the soul now is revivified by the presence of the Spirit of God. In the reading from Acts today, we have a reading that might be described by some as a day in the life of St. Paul, missionary to the Gentiles. We're continuing on. He's in Macedonia, and he's there, and last week he met with Lydia, one of the holy women of that community, and baptized her and her household. And this week he is still in Macedonia, and he goes to Philippi. We've heard of Philippi. And he goes there, and he uh, is preaching and uh, engaged in his missionary work. Now, there's a young woman, a slave girl, who apparently has psychic powers. 
But in the description, by the way, a biblical scholar would tell you that the way this story is written would absolutely resonate with um, uh, Hellenistic uh, pagans in that part of the ancient Near East. And what we have now is an exposing of a corrupt practice. This young woman who may in fact have psychic powers is being exploited by her owners and they're making a lot of money from her prophecy. She is bugging Paul. And she goes around and is identifying him legitimately as what he is and speaks about him and who he is. He finally has had it. And so he exercises the spirit from her. This makes her owners very angry. And the upshot of it is that he and his colleagues are arrested and put in jail. By the way, this is going to be one of the times when we learn in the book of Acts that Paul was a Roman citizen, and so were all of the people with him, and it's going to be his ticket out of jail, his get-out-of-jail card, uh, as you read to the end of chapter 16. Now, here's where this whole business about being a student of the Bible is important and I had to become one. It was part of the deal. If you read this in Greek, you will see that it says this young woman is possessed with a Pythian spirit. It's where we get the word in English, python, the snake. And not very far away from Philippi is Delphi. Have you heard of that in the ancient, you know, where the, the oracle of Delphi is? And also at Delphi is a snake that is the evil side of all of this. And so in this expose and this exorcism, we have the removal for the readership and for the people that Paul was interacting with uh, of forces that were um, not arrayed for good. Why this is important for Christian people is that in our sacred literature, Paul now stands in continuity with the Savior himself. And particularly in Mark's gospel, Jesus is someone who has complete authority and dominion over the world of the spirits. And more to the point, it is the spirits who recognize him and in Mark's gospel are the only ones who use the messianic titles to refer to him. And in this reading from the book of Acts, Paul has dominion and authority over the spirits who have identified through this young woman who he is and authentically described his missionary work. And it is a testimony for the readership of the book of Acts that we see now the Apostle Paul and all the missionaries to the Gentiles, which are now the majority of the work of the Christian church after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, everybody left town. So there were no more Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, but there were a lot of Gentile Christians 
and a lot of ministry to the Gentiles outside of Jerusalem and certainly in the Hellenistic world. I read this passage, if I was going to sit with it and meditate about it and understand somehow uh, the world of the Spirit, it's fair to say that uh, most of us don't think that way now. Most of us are far too little. We're Western people. We've been conditioned for 300 years by the Enlightenment, by the scientific method, by empiricism, by all kinds of things. So the idea of thinking about the world of the spirits, the invisible unseen world, we tend to be somewhat more rational about all of that. That's not the way a lot of people in the world even now think about things. And when I think about my own life, I have to be honest and tell you that there are a whole lot of spirits that are governing the way I think and act on a daily basis. My memories, my personal history, my anxiety, my joyfulness, all of those things one cannot see. We see the results of them, but they are spiritual. They are unseen. They are invisible. And so when we speak about, in Christianity, the power of the Savior over the world of the spirits, it means that because his spirit is in you, you now have the power to keep your personal demons at bay and to achieve some species of serenity and the non-anxious presence. So this reading from Acts is a good one in preparation for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it demonstrates the power of Paul's work in his missionary life. The reading from Revelation is another one of these readings. Here again, I will say every time I preach on it, the people who heard the book of Revelation read to them or read it themselves understood everything that was in it. They understood all of the apocalyptic imagery. They understood all of the symbolism. They knew what all the references were about. They didn't need to wait till 1970 for Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth to unpack for us what the book of Revelation said. They knew what it said. You and I don't know what it said because we don't think like that anymore most of the time in these mythic apocalyptic terms. But this work was written for Christians outside of Jerusalem, for non-Jewish Christians, and it was about the seven churches, which are now in western Turkey, and about their common experience of persecution under the Roman Empire. And the imagery that is being used here resonated with all those communities. They knew exactly what it meant. And there's a famous line in today's reading from the book of Revelation. God refers to himself in the book of Revelation as, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He uses the first, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. So what in the world would some Hellenistic-influenced individual in the seven churches in now Western Turkey, what would they figure out about what the Alpha and the Omega meant? 
Well, if they had any education at all or any influence in the schools that Alexander the Great had set up a thousand years before, they would have heard of somebody named Plato. And in the laws, Plato describes God as the Alpha and the Omega. Well, why is it in the New Testament? It's in the New Testament because it is a demonstration that these are. this is not only a title for God that Jews and Christians use. It's a title that's authoritative for everybody. And that means that the work of God in Christ is for everybody. And God's authoritative work in the world has something to do with its universal significance and its resonance with all of humanity. And so in preparation for the coming of the Spirit of God, we believe that God is the sum, the beginning and the end, from all eternity. The reading from today's Gospel is a portion of the great high priestly prayer that Jesus prays at the Last Supper. And today it is a prayer about the nature of his relationship with God, and his conviction that the intensity and the intimacy of this relationship is not his alone, but can be shared by everyone. And so he prays not only for the people that are present with him in the upper room, at the Last Supper, the apostles and the disciples, he prays for all those in future who will be touched by their life and their work. And he prays that they will begin to understand the intensity of this relationship. For the author of John's Gospel, in this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, they understand that to be absolute alignment with the purposes of God. Now the community out of which John's Gospel came believed that they were seeing as eyewitnesses the mighty works of Jesus Christ as providing them with tools that they could use. And so as they matured in the Spirit they would be in a position now to do these things themselves. And as the Savior leaves them in the ascension, his spirit, the advocate, the helper, comes now to be present, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen them. And this great high priestly prayer today is about that prayer for unity, that they all may be one, You know, this is one of the texts that's read often at ecumenical gatherings, and it focuses our attention on thinking that because we are not unified, and that for sure is true and hasn't been for a long time, that it will be only historical perseverance by human beings that we will achieve the species of unity that we are called to have as Christian people. But what is meant in this passage by John is not that kind of unity only, 
but the unity that all Christian people experience even in the midst of their diversity and difference through the hearing of the word of God read in the biblical witness and through participating in the sacramental life of the church on a weekly basis, the participation in the Eucharist, the receiving of that spiritual food and drink, which gives us the strength and the stamina to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us, and to help us understand our role as reconcilers and unifiers in big and small ways in our personal life, in our job, in our community life, everywhere we desire to labor to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. So this week, give thanks for the opportunity to be an instrument of the reconciling, reconciling power of God. Give thanks for the opportunity to see this not in overly heroic terms, but in bigger and smaller ways in your own life. You know, if you help move things along in a more godly direction by this much, you're doing a great job. The priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona said, Christian people are inchers. So this is about inching along in a godly direction. And next week we're going to celebrate that thing which will help you do it. Amen.